Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and today I am actually at the International Legal Technology Association Annual Conference, which means I'm not available to be recording a new edition of this podcast. But fear not, we have an archival episode that talks about some of the very issues that I'm learning about here at this conference. And so we thought we would cue that up for you. So enjoy this archival edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer. With your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I am, of course, Joe Patrice from Above the Law, with me, as always. Ellie Mistal. What an excellent cold open there, Joseph Patrice. You know, I did. You know, I I've been doing this for much longer than I uh, than I think most of our readers would like. Yeah. So, yeah. well, you are very old. Yeah, right. Exactly. And yet, I'm I'm not the one with a head full of gray hair like you over here. <laughs> How you been? I've been good. What's up with you? Liberals are bothering me this week. I mean, okay. Now. I think we need to clarify there's multiple definitions of that potential term. So, like, your your view of it is more – your concern is obviously more with people who are already left of center as you are, but who are not as left of center as you. Who are not sufficiently kind of. pure. Yeah, right. And not sufficiently, uh, <laughs> I, I think, ready for what comes next, right? I think we everybody had this big kind of like, oh, blue wave, we're going to yeah. – right? And then, you know, it was actually – there was actually a wave. I mean, gerrymandering makes that hard to see. But, I mean, the Democrats won significant gains in the House. Something like 8.3%. Um, yeah. You're right. Didn't take back the Senate. Mm-hmm. Trump is still the president. Sure. He's still going to be the president because you're, you're not going to have 67 votes to impeach him. Right. And so now it's it, it, it's like kind of what are we going to do next? And so often you hear liberals kind of talk about how they're going to get how they're trying to get back to norms and get back to mm-hmm. to the way things were. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not going to be that, mm-hmm. right? Like we're not going back. So one of our favorite, I guess he's a professor, but one of our favorite podcasters, um, really, is Mike Duncan. Okay. Um, um, he did the History of Rome series. He currently is doing a series called Revolutions. And he has a book out um, called The Storm Before the Storm. Mm-hmm. Um, this book is is basically about the generation before Caesar, you know, yeah. the generation that killed sure. the Roman Republic before Caesar killed the Roman Republic. Sure. And like the main takeaway of his book is that once the norms break down, right? once the political and social norms go away, they don't come back. Right. The next generation builds on that norm breaking and breaks all brand new norms. Sure. You you, you can't reverse time's arrow on this stuff. Mm. And I don't think liberals sufficiently understand that that is the stage of history that we are living in. Right. So your position is that they should be more ready to just push forward into Caligula. Uh, that's I'm trying to get us ready yeah. to ha- so that and when when Caligula shows up, he's on our side yeah. as opposed to the other guy's side. Um, that sounds terrible. And um, so 
good. Well, this is this is my disagreement with you. This and and you're you're big on this uh, asymmetrical war yes. aspect, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That liberals can't burn it down because that just helps the conservatives. Yeah. And I understand that argument. That's not a bad. That's not as bad as some of the other ones. Yeah, but yeah, but I mean, it is not as as great an argument as all the other ones that beat yours. Yes, but at some fundamental level, I think liberals need to understand and to be prepared to do what is necessary now to roll back. The things that we need to roll back from Trump are not Trump's norm breaking. We need to start rolling back the actual damage he is causing to people. Right. The only way we're going to do that is by getting down the dirt and fighting and playing some hardball. I have no idea how any of that makes any sense. Uh, like I, I don't know what, like that seems like empty i don't know what that means like what is this hardbally thing like there there's no Back the court okay i mean all right that's fine i mean that's not really a norm breaking thing really in a lot of senses i mean that's it's controlled by a judiciary act that's a statute it's not like you're changing constitutional norms in any way I don't. If you have votes for it, then you can do that. See, this is why you disagree, though, because you see when I say breaking norms, you do that I, kind of I, thing. I, I, you're I mean like, oh, things like not, norms. That's yeah. not a norm. This this is like you're you're so you're already so Precise. goddamn left of me yes. that the things that most people think that we're radical about, I just say them in a radical way. Right. You say the same radical crap, but you say it's like, oh, well, that's clearly fair enough. Normal for us to have fifteen justices if we want to. Sure. I mean, the world's grown. Anyway, let's get on with our actual conversation of the day where we're going to talk about the future kind of of the legal landscape and how to deliver legal services going forward. Our guest today is Ralph Baxter. He's the former head of ORIC, uh, and now he's a board member of INTAP. So welcome to the show. Well, I'm delighted to be here and to listen to that fascinating conversation you have about the future of politics in America. Well, yeah, because you, let's start there. So you actually have run for Congress. So I have. What was that experience like? Uh, Because I think I speak for most people who have never run for Congress that it seems like that would be a a whole to do. Well, it it is a whole to do. And and it was fundamentally a very rewarding experience. I I loved every minute of it. I even uh, enjoyed the fundraising part, because the way we did it was to reach out to people one by one and uh, engage with people about what matters and why I was running and, and appeal to them to uh, support the campaign, not just to write a check. We needed checks to be written, but to support the ideas we were pursuing. So I, I loved it. I loved the the part uh, in which I got to really get together with people in West Virginia and people's living rooms and homes and and talk about the issues that confront uh, our state of West Virginia. Uh, but the outcome was disappointing, And uh, but I'm glad I did it. I'll, I'll never regret doing it. Yeah. Are you thinking about ever doing it again? No. No, nah, fair <laughs> enough. We had, and, and not, not because I didn't enjoy it, not, not for any reason of um, any negative reaction to, to doing it, but... Um, my family and I had uh, decided that we would regard this as a single elimination tournament. And uh, <laughs> I enough. lost in the first round, and and that is that. So I will continue to be active in advocating positions and supporting other candidates and so on, but I won't be a candidate myself. 
Mr. Baxter, I'm, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Um, and for people who don't know all of your backstory, I, I can't get into your full resume here. But, you know, if, if you don't know who Ralph Baxter is, he is one of the big thinkers in the legal profession. He is one of the one of those people who has a vision of where this is, not just of where this is all going, but really like how this all fits together. He's, he's not the kind of lawyer who just, who managing partner, um, who's just kind of living from paycheck to paycheck, if you will. So Mr. Baxter, one of my first questions that, that I, one of the reasons I'm happy to have you on, we happen to be in bonus season. At 30,000 feet, when I try to explain bonus season, especially to non-lawyers, especially or even to lawyers who just don't happen to work in big law, one of the things that I always struggle to explain to them is why bonus season is essentially a collusive enterprise <laughs> among about 100 firms. Why do all of these firms follow each other in lockstep when it comes to their bonus payments? Do you have any insight as, as to on that? Like, do you do you have a do you have a sense as to why this market? Were, and again, I'm using collusion in, in the colloquial sense. Obviously, right. these are lawyers. They right. know they know exactly how not to collude. Right. Yes. But do you have a sense of how this industry has gotten to this point, um, where a hundred or so firms are going to be lockstep in their payment for talent? Well, that question. The answer to that question would would take us a lot longer than we have, and it, it, it starts it right. It starts with everything from the way lawyers are trained, the psychology of lawyers that causes people to choose to be lawyers to begin with. Those things really are at work in this kind of a question. But I think fundamentally, in the in the modern contemporary sense, this is about the war for talent and the the challenge that law firms believe they are facing at attracting and retaining people who are up to doing the work and, and serving the clients and so on that the that are involved in the law firms. And they, they worry that if they fall behind what they perceive to be the market, that they will somehow uh, materially undermine their ability to attract and retain the lawyers they need. And I think it's what's really important about this is that it's an element of the law firm business model needing fundamental overhaul and this part relates to the financial model of the law firms, the incentive systems of the law firms, which need, well, fundamental change. So that's a good transition point to talk about what you do now. So you're in this unique position of having, you know, been a top uh, global big law firm, and now you're working with Intap. And so before we get too far down the road, Intap has kind of a broad portfolio. It's you know, kind of does consulting services. There's a platform that uses some cutting edge technology. So it's all though about what you were just saying about helping firms, you know, get their model right. So can you give us a quick summary of what Intap does? Sure. And, the, and let me just back up. I am on the board of directors of Intap right, of and Intap and I found each other because of what each of us uh, is doing. Since I left Oric, except for my excursion into um, into politics, uh, I've been dedicating my time to modernizing the way legal service is delivered. I've, that motivated me when I was running Oric, and it motivates me today. And, and I've, as you say, I've got a different perspective on it now, uh, working from the outside. So I'm engaged in a lot of different things. I'm very active with at Stanford Law School with the Center on, for the Legal Profession and the Codex, the Center for Law and Informatics at Stanford, and 
Um, I work with, at the Harvard Center for the Legal Profession. I'm doing a number of things, and one of which, and one of which is very important to me, is INTAP. INTAP is a data technology, information technology company. It serves law firms predominantly. It has over 95% of the MLaw 200 are customers of INTAP. So it's got as broad and a, an involvement with the large law firms of the United States and beyond the United States as well as, as anyone. And it is doing just what you said. It is helping law firms modernize. It started by helping them organize and integrate their data. And then progressively over time, the company is about 17 years old, has positioned itself to have a platform that helps law firms access organize, analyze all of their data, and law firms have an enormous databases, uh, all of their data so that they can serve clients and build their law firm businesses better by distilling the learning from uh, their data to do all of that in a, in a much more effective way. It seems like we've kind of joke around here a lot that lawyers with some notable exceptions, obviously, um, mostly like the people like us all on this conversation. But lawyers, generally speaking, have not been the most tech savvy, not been the most open to letting technology show them what to do. But that kind of old school world is becoming one of those things where competition is pushing that out. It seems like the more and more I dig into this sort of thing, the more and more, like you said, about how there's data everywhere. I think big law firms are coming around to the realization that there is data everywhere and that data can help you do things like figure out how to realize bills faster, figure out how to price things out better. Is this the sort of point where, and maybe this is in a lot of ways what INTAP really brings to the table, it, is it reaching a point where maybe in some of these law firms, we've historically let them be run by lawyers. It's a partnership and lawyer in charge. Is it increasingly getting to the point where maybe some of these tasks need to be, there needs to be a letting go and realizing that maybe as lawyers, what we're good at is law and not necessarily the best at figuring out what we need to do to run this as a business. And maybe that's a role for either outsider managers to be involved or for consultant groups to be involved. I guess I'm kind of all over, but do you feel like that's the sort of place where lawyers are having a real hard time letting go? Well, lawyers have had a hard time letting go as long as I have been a lawyer. I <laughs> lived through, I, I, you know, I've been a lawyer for 44 years. And so during my time, we went from lawyers doing pretty much everything to professionalizing progressively the management of, of law firms. And in the early days, the law firms had a very hard time really letting go of responsibility to professionals who weren't themselves licensed to practice law. And I think we're past that in big law, certainly. But I do think law firms need to continue to professionalize, to assign responsibility for different elements of managing the firm and actually different elements of delivering legal service to the people who are best positioned to do it. I mean, your, your question, like the earlier question you asked, goes to a lot of different things. Within the practice of law, there are lots of, of uh, tasks and activities that themselves are not the practice of law. Fundamental fact-gathering, due diligence and other fact-gathering itself is not the practice of law. And elements of like fact-gathering can be done 
by people from very from diverse backgrounds. In fact, depending on what the subject matter is, often somebody would be better positioned to do that by virtue of training in engineering or some kind of science than uh, training in law. So I do I do think firms need to do that, but I don't think that's the fundamental problem. I think the fundamental challenge for law firms is taking stock of why the market is as restless as it is, why it it seems so clearly to be searching for for a different kind of service, a different value proposition than the one it is getting from most of the law firms, and then adapting to the answer to that question. You know, the reality is lawyers are really outstanding at what they do, and certainly the lawyers in, in the most successful firms are really outstanding at what they do, what they set out to do in their careers. They're great trial lawyers. They're great deal lawyers. They do great. That's not the problem. And the problem isn't that they don't know how to make some money because the lawyers continue to be highly compensated. The problem is that the service is not being delivered to the clients. And if we just focus for the moment on the corporate clients in the way the corporate clients want it, Uh, it's not as responsive to their actual business objectives as they want it to be. It takes more time than they want it to take. It's less transparent than they want it to be. And it costs more than they want to pay and more than they think they should pay. And that problem is exacerbated because pretty much everybody knows it could be done better. Modern tools, technology and process design, and and of those two, process design, I think, is the more important, enable us to deliver legal service in a way that is more in keeping with what the clients really want. And the challenge for law firms is to take stock of that, be realistic about that, and figure out how they adapt their models so they can respond to what the market really wants better. Given that disconnect that um, that you bring up between um, the services provided and the services demanded, do you think that the legal economy is stable? Um, you have the unique perspective of having kind of lived through one of these, the last big legal market recession, contraction, whatever you want to call it, in the mid-2000s. Whenever, certainly whenever I see, and you know, Joe's with me on this, whenever you start to see all the salary raises and all the lockstep bonuses and whatever, you know that what's happening is that the firms that are healthy – are putting a lot of pressure on the firms that are unhealthy, on the firms that that can't keep up. Right. Certainly right now the economy is going great, but that's not going to last forever. Like do you think that the kind of the fundamentals of the legal economy are strong or do you think we're just kind of a couple years away from another big kind of layoff hit? I don't know about the layoff hit. I, I don't I don't think so first of all I think the fundamentals are strong. The demand for legal services has never been greater. Never. And the demand for legal service is growing. What's happening, and what your question really goes to, what's happening is that less and less of the overall market demand for legal services, demand defined as the need for it, the the interest in it, the desire for it, less and less of that demand is going to the largest law firms. More and more is going somewhere else. That's why there's this increasingly intense competition among the firms for the remaining work, because more of it is going in-house, going to alternative providers. A lot of it around the world is, is going to the big four as they get bigger and bigger in law. Um, right. And, and that, that's the setting. But the business of law, 
the profession of law is as important as, as any profession in the world. Law drives global commerce. It drives local commerce. It enables a just society. And there's more and more law and, and data that makes complying with the law more and more complicated. So it's a great profession to be in, in the sense that it's, you, you are uh, serving noble causes. Uh, it's a great business to be in, in the sense that, that there will be a demand for the services and you can make a great living and have a rewarding career. But big law is going to undergo significant change in the years ahead. And I have a sense that we're on the brink of rapidly accelerating change. I mean, one thing, one thing to note is this. When you read the financial reports of how law firms do every year in the American lawyer and, and, and above the law and, and elsewhere, um, the averages, as reported, continue to go up. And I'm actually surprised every year that they do, but they do. But within that, when you look at the performance of the individual firms, the individual participants, and if you had the data, if you could look within that, at practices and offices and other subparts of law firms, it's not the same kind of uniform story. And not everything is going up. And not everything's going up at the same pace, even among those that are going up. And in the data that's beneath the surface, you can see the impact of these pressures in the marketplace. And I think in the time ahead, I think that there will be more losers. There's going to be winners and losers. There's going to be more people struggling, more firms struggling, more practice groups struggling, and there's going to be some volatility within the marketplace. I feel like real estate lawyers all across the land just took out their lighters, put them up in the air um, <laughs> for that one. Um, I Look, I can't let you get out of here without talking a little bit about outsourcing versus insourcing. Um, again, I think you've been kind of a visionary on this in terms of encouraging or showing a way in which law firms can insource some of their lower level legal work um, instead of to very expensive first or second year associates who don't want to be doing that work anyway. Um, mm -hmm. uh, as a from former first or second year associate, I can attest to that. Um, right. To insource that work to contract attorneys, um, and people, you know, some some with law degrees, maybe some not with the most expensive law degrees, in places in markets um, that are not as expensive to live in. And I also think that the importance of that um, that you saw was that if the firms aren't insourcing it, and those jobs aren't going to kind of American trained lawyers, then eventually the firms are going to outsource it. And we know that, you know, right right now, we know that legal markets outside of the U.S. are eating a lot of that kind of low-level, yet still critically important man hours. And they're providing that work for clients, quality work for clients at a discounted rate. So can you talk a little bit more about just, just insourcing versus outsourcing? And, and, and as a law student who, you know, let's say for a second we're not talking about law students who are going to Harvard and Yale and trying to be Supreme Court justices. For a person just kind of thinking about getting, you know, a quality uh, state school law degree, what that means for them kind of in the big law market. Well, uh, that's a handful. But they, I do think that insourcing is a great idea. And what we did at ORIC was create a center in Wheeling, West Virginia, which, as you said, it, as you suggested, it's a lower cost uh, community. Cost of living there is lower, and it was more cost effective to do the work there. Lots of people 
who want to live in Wheeling and in that area of West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania that come together right there. Um, and it, it made all the sense in the world. And on any given day, Oryx got 150 lawyers uh, in its office there in Wheeling, West Virginia. But that's just one way that you might address this question. The real issue for the law firms is how best to do the work that needs to be done to serve the clients. And so is the answer to do it entirely with people who start at over $200,000 a year in compensation, sitting in buildings with the highest rents in the world, or is it? are there better ways to do it? And the answer, of course, is there are better ways to do it and to, <laughs> to uh, disaggregate the work, assign work to people who are optimal to do that work. And, and you've touched on something that's really important. Not everyone's going to be interested in doing all the different kinds of work that a law firm needs to do to serve its clients. It's not just a matter of what's the right cost profile. It's also a matter of matching the work to the interests of the uh, of the individuals and, and matching work to the talents of the individuals. And the traditional law firm is regimented in a model that was created no uh, no later than, than after the Second World War, and we need to be more creative and be like our clients are and more thoughtful about what might be. And so the insourcing was one change that Oric made, and it's it's been wildly successful for everybody. But there are lots of other changes that can be made if we just open our minds and think about how might we do this best. What resources do we need to have? For example, what resources do we need to have? Is it sufficient to have on-track to partner associates and partners, and that's those are the only humans who can do the work, or could we diversify the workforce, diversify the content of different positions, the career paths of different people, uh, and and do a better job? And the answer, of course, is we can, and we can populate our law firms with lawyers who are who don't choose what just as you suggested. Not everybody wants to be a partner in a big law firm, no matter where they went to law school. So we could we could populate our law firm with lawyers, some of whom want to be partners, some of whom are partners, others who want a reliable, long-term position practicing law in a in a positive environment, doing rewarding work, but who don't aspire to do all of the things that the partners are expected to do. And that's what Oric has done. Oric doesn't have contract lawyers; it has career associates, and it, there's a career there, and you can be there for your entire career. But it's a different path, it's a, and the, the responsibilities are different than if you want a role as an associate on track to be a partner. And why wouldn't we have others in our workforce who are intelligent, hardworking, trustworthy professionals who are not licensed to practice law, but who can do a, the elements of our work that is not itself the practice of law? Why wouldn't we diversify our, our workforce that way? And why wouldn't we use technology to do the parts that it can do, machine learning, with each passing day, can do more of the routine work, that very work that first-year, second-year lawyers don't want to do, clients don't want to pay first- and second-year lawyers to do, can be done by the technology. Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we have partnerships with others who organize businesses in a different way to be able to, to do parts of the work in a, in a way that is effectively an outsourcing or a partnering with us when they can do it more effectively than we can? Why wouldn't we make that part of our resource model? And that's the kind of thinking that the law firms need to do. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And 
Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you aren't subscribed to the show, you should. You should give us reviews. You should follow us on at Above the Law. You should follow at L-E-N-Y-C and at Joseph Patrice on Twitter. Above the Law now has an Instagram account. You can do that, too. I mean— We have a what? Instagram, yeah. We're, like, moving <laughs> slowly into the 21st century. So, uh, yes, uh, do all those things. Listen to the Legal Talk what Network shows. What do you put up, like, pictures of briefs? <laughs> uh, there's, some, there's some good stuff that's been put up there. We've got people working on it. Our top, top people uh, working on this. Anyway, so with that, thank you so much, and thanks to Smith AI, and we will talk to you again soon. I'm the executive editor that didn't know we had an Instagram account. Fair enough. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.